1: Hello everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Craig Servillo, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Martin Klaub about his excellent new book, Coming of Age, Constructing and Controlling Youth in Munich, 1942-1973, to published in 2016. Martin, hello, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to have you today. And uh, before we get talking about your book, I'd like to ask um, our traditional first question. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, Martin, and uh, how you got interested in history uh, more broadly. And uh, so I'll turn it over to you.
0: Thank you. Well, I, I grew up in Germany, more precisely, in a, in a small village outside of Bayreuth, so in northern Bavaria. And I'd always been interested in history growing up but I originally planned to teach PE uh, TE and English as a second language for the secondary level, so gymnasium. Some of my own inabilities, I must say, when it comes to gymnastics, forced me to look for an alternative, basically, and um, given that I'm rather tall, I didn't feel comfortable taking the practical entry exam in place for PE TE teachers in Germany. So I ended up with history and English once I attended Friedrich Alexander University in in Nürnberg, And throughout my time there, I ended up loving history much more and soon switched from teaching to a traditional uh, MA, in my case, with a major in history, so Zeitgeschichte, to be more concise, and two minors, political science and American cultural studies. Now, during my time there, I think it was in 2004, I also received a scholarship from the Federation of German-American Clubs. So it's an organization growing out of post-World War II efforts to kind of promote German-American relations, and uh, that allowed me to study for an academic year at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. So after that year abroad, I finished my MA in Erlang in 2007. I had worked with a scholar there, Dr. Schilden. Was more diplomatic historian, and my thesis focused on the role of George Bush Sr. within the German unification process. And I then planned to complete my PhD in Erlangen as well, focusing on denazification. But when uh, Northern Arizona University offered me a graduate assistantship, I decided to go with that. Also because that institution at the time had an array of scholars kind of tied to modern European history. So in fall 2007, I entered their PhD program and throughout my time there, I was much more exposed to theoretical concepts, which I greatly enjoyed, and I also kind of shifted my approach from more of the top-down history to a more bottom-up history approach.
1: Hmm. Uh, yeah, fascinating. And that's, um, so it's the book that we're going to talk about today. Was this your dissertation?
0: It was a dissertation then turned after some I would say some decent amount of revisions into into a book.
1: Yes. Okay. Um. So, um, youth culture is a probably underserved topic, um, not just for German history but for lots of um, areas. Um. So, can you talk to us about how not only you came to write the book but how you became interested in this particular topic?
0: Well, when I was in, the, or trying to think about a topic for the PhD program or for getting a PhD in Llangenell. It was kind of focusing around denazification in Nuremberg. I had done an internship at the Stadtarchiv, so the local archives in Nuremberg, and I realized there should be more case studies, and I still had that in my mind when I came to the U.S. and started the Ph.D. program there. So that was kind of the mindset I was in when I was looking through newspapers on microfilm in Flagstaff, namely the Munich-based paper, Die Süddeutsche Zeitung was the only publication or major publication for Bavaria I could access. And, and I actually write about this in the book, one, uh, in the preface, one snowy evening in the library in Flagstaff. I kind of stumbled upon this headline from September 1946 that read, quote, Bavarian problems, youth, food, export, unquote. And it kind of really struck me that youth would be such an important concern or problem in a time where Munich is trying to rebuild and recover. And that question from there on forward, just what is so important about youth at that juncture, kind of defined my research from there on
1: forward. Um, And you mentioned in your, while you were introducing yourself, your sort of shift in focus and or your your interest in of theoretical concepts and this book you make very clear in the beginning in the introduction that you're relying heavily on Foucault um is a way of guiding the way you're thinking about this problem um can you talk about the the intellectual under underpinnings of this book um and, and particularly Foucault uh, particularly for our listeners who may not be um as familiar with some of the concepts that you're that you're sort of
0: yeah, making sure. the foundations so, of this book first, on maybe as a, as a broader element And that's in line with the work of many other scholars. I see youth as a social construction, so it's a concept that's only broadly defined by age. So it means what defines youth has changed over time. It's not just this age range. And in line with that historiography and scholarship, there's this sort of conversation within the field that youth is historically either defined as the hope for the future, so fascist movements fit into that narrative, Or as a threat for society current and future and that's when loitering youngsters on street corners smoking cigarettes so the whole delinquency conversation fits in. Now in my book I was interested in the latter so juvenile delinquency so and mainly the constructs of youth as delinquent as deviant as a threat to society and in my research Again, together with the work of many other scholars, I thereby kind of challenge the supposed widespread nature of juvenile delinquency. And that aligns with the works of individuals like sociologist Stanley Cohen, for example, who spoke about moral panics around youth and youth culture. Now, Michel Foucault's volume, Discipline and Punish in particular, but also other pieces of his work, then help answer the question of why would anyone want to construct youth as delinquent? So what are the benefits of illegality or of delinquency, as you put it? And the discourse of social welfare and juvenile delinquency fits into this narrative, I believe, and as I know in the book, makes constructs of youth as delinquent kind of valuable tools of social control. Now for my case study, I, I believe that works in kind of three ways. First, constructing delinquency and with that some sort of Some sort of deviant other helps mark norms and standards, and that's especially important in a society that's trying to regain some sort of stability. So it really applies to Munich in this particular moment in time. Second, uh, the existence of juvenile delinquency kind of legitimizes the being of certain institutions, In the book, I discuss, for instance, how various figures point to juvenile delinquency to justify the quick denazification of the youth welfare office because it has to act. And then finally, to kind of physically and symbolically wrestle with such marked of society as embodied by juvenile delinquents kind of increases the power and influence of various institutions. So, in a way, I frame my work along those lines. I use Munich as a case study to capture these, these larger dynamics tied to the construction of youth as delinquent, but also then the benefits of doing so. And that last step, I think, takes it a step further than maybe previous discussions of youth and youth culture.
1: Uh, you mentioned the newspaper headline that you read in, in the library. Um, I was curious if you had thought about um, if you when you when you were going to do this project, did you you knew you were going to do Munich, and this was going to be your area. Did you consider other areas, or did you look into other other regions of Germany?
0: I did. I was always a little careful there's there's a there's a good amount of stuff on on Berlin, but I always see, felt and still feel that Berlin has a sort of special status during the Cold War. It's a divided city and Munich in itself. There's less done on it, but there's an array of primary sources. There's a youth institute there, there's a lot happening there. It's a more open, liberal, social-democratically governed town and it's surrounded by a conservative state. So there's a lot of things that really struck me that make some sort of maybe richer, if you will, case study than maybe Berlin. And those were the two I was looking into more specifically.
1: Yes. Now, thanks for clarifying. I think that it's important for people to understand that uh, Germany is a very diverse place, um, and it's different. It's very regional. Um, So I just wanted our listeners to be clear as to why Munich um, in particular. Um, Your book is separated into three um, sections, three major sections, um, which will make it easy for us to talk about it in that way. Um, So you have these sections that begin from forty-two to uh, 1942 to 1949, um, and then you have this sex, uh, second section that's sort of the middle period up to um, the 60s and then 68 on. Um, can you explain how you arrived at that chronology, uh, just sort of more broadly, and then I'll get to some specifics.
0: In many ways, the the sources, so the logic of the sources kind of pointed to that. So I divided into, as you mentioned, the so-called crisis years. I pushed those back into 42 because for Munich, that sort of crisis moment began with the first major Allied bombings of Munich in the summer of 1942. And it then ends more traditionally with the currency, currency reform in 49 and then the second chunk goes from 49 to 62, because in Munich, the those are the long 1950s if you will, but in Munich, the riots of the 1960s already began in 62, with the riots in Schwabing that year. So the 60s to then protest years, that third chunk of the book, are much longer in a way than they are traditionally. So in many ways, the sources kind of pointed in that direction. And then you try to make sense of that case study within the larger historiography. And that's how I then came up with the sort of three distinct periods that I used to examine these images of youth.
1: Okay. Um, so, yeah, let, let's start with the crisis years from 42 to 49. Um, you explained that they had sort of these, these two images of the delinquent boy and the sexually deviant girl. Um, what do you mean by that? Um, and how. Um, how did the state respond to these, um, I'm guessing you're going to say, perceived uh, problems?
0: Yes. So uh, the delinquent boy, so the the original term and language that shows up in the records is de favalos de Junge, and the sexually human girl, so the sexual favalos de mädchen are the kind of key characters, if you will, in that section. and be clear that those terms show up literally in the historical record repeatedly, so I don't come up with them. That's how authorities saw those particular uh, threats, if you will. Now, they emerged in the, in the early or in the mid-40s, 45, 46, as discussions shifted from seeing youth as victims of the war more towards young people as morally deviant, corrupt, and, and an open threat to the rebuilding process. So the delinquent boy is then seen as loitering on street corners, he's trading on the black market, he's refusing to participate in local elections, and authorities know that he's not joining the overall effort, not because he can, but because he does not want to, and that's a clear distinction that becomes increasingly clear in those mid-40s. So the image is thereby challenging efforts of hardworking adult residents to rebuild Munich. And we see then more and more the sort of dichotomy between old, hardworking residents and then young people who just hang out. They just do whatever they would like. Now, the reality on the ground when looking at the record tells a little bit of a different story. Most did help. Few Munich residents could avoid not trading on the black market. And young people did participate in the political process. They just didn't rely on this uh, on the traditional parties. They wanted something new, something more democratic to an extent. Now, the sexually deviant girl supposedly challenges the moral order by fraternizing with, namely, American soldiers, so American GI's, and that story has been told to some extent by historians already. But I felt that there has been not there hasn't been enough attention given to to the age element. They're mostly younger girls or young women and they fraternize as Americans as soon as they arrived in Munich in April 1945 to quote-unquote liberate the city and according to some records describing that moment that's the storyline that's been picked up. Now they supposedly socialized for chocolate and cigarettes even with African Americans which is unheard in German history to some extent and they spread sexually transmitted diseases. Now again, some do, but some also fall in love, and many do not. But given the underlining fears about Muni's future, there was little room for these nuances, and we see some sort of moral panic that kind of unfolds at that particular moment.
1: Um, Yeah, and and, and can you talk a little bit more about how the the youth... Particularly in this first period, seem to be stuck. They seem to be stuck between images of the youth as the future, and the youth as something dangerous. Um, and how how do they reconcile this? Um, and, and and or do they do they purposely use the the both these narratives at times when it suits them? Yeah,
0: I mean, historically, those narratives are sometimes there at the same time. Sometimes they shift, and in that period I'm looking at, so in the the 40s in particular, there's a shift taking place where youth was, there's various instances in the the record and newspapers where youth is in in these clear columns, walking down the street, being very organized, and then all of a sudden, because war creates this crisis moment. We see, or locals see youngsters loitering and selling stuff on street corners and doing all kinds of things, and that's just unheard of. And they get concerned, and they feel that society is in danger and something has to happen.
1: Um, do, Do youth fight back against these perceptions, or do they just don't care or don't notice?
0: So there's a larger trajectory that I'm trying to get at at the book, which kind of speaks to the title, Coming of Age. Originally in the 40s, there are efforts of trying to fight back, but given the lack of agency and the lack of power that young people, actual young people have, they have little options over time, 50s and then certainly in the 60s, they will have more power and agency and that's where we see some sort of clear pushback, which I point out is kind of this process of a society coming of age, of growing up a little bit, because now there's not just one authority or a certain group of adult authorities defining young people and defining how society should be run, but it becomes much more diversified.
1: Good. Um, yeah, and that, that, that's probably a good place to transition into your, your second period. Um, the sort of the Americanization of youth culture. I mean, you have the, the Marshall Plan and the German Economic Miracles, so they've got not only money coming in, economic stability, but American products. Um, so can you talk about how um, youth is viewed in this period? Because um, the worries, I imagine, are quite different um, than in the previous period.
0: There's, again, two images I've... I, I, I I was able to to find in kind of the historical record. They're they're very well known to some extent. One is the high so literally some semi uh, semi strong, main, mainly male young rowdies. They're kind of built on this rebel culture that pours in from the U.S. with movies like Marlon Brando with Marlon Brando and films with James Dean and things like that. And then there's the teenager, which originally is male, mainly a female construct. So again sexualized in the sense that they now have short hair, they even wear blue jeans, things like that. Now, both of these images threaten society, they endanger society, they are, again, exaggerated, so there's this moral panic element. For me, for example, the the are a queer minority, and most of them just use their mopeds to kind of travel from their working-class neighborhoods to work every day. And it's clear that several newspapers actively feed the fear of these sorts of images. So, for instance, there's an instance I write about where a local Munich newspaper, the Ossoidon, kind of even invented a brawl between a motorcycle gang in Munich at a beer garden just to feed into that hysteria and to sell papers. And the same applies to, for, for female youngsters, which are considered as we can't leave them alone or they're going to just re- never return into the traditional mindset of church, children, and kitchen that we want them to be part of. So, again, similar to the 1940s, there's a step, the authorities step in in the 1940s. They did raids, they reestablished institutions, they did all kinds of, they they made sure that schools are denazified much quicker, that they get them off the streets. And now in the 50s, they become a little more nuanced, but still very direct in their response against those images So to control youth. They start limiting, for instance, there's a law passed that you cannot just cruise around with your moped, things like that. They try to limit the movement of youth, if you will. There's a... There's other efforts, and that has to do with that the society shifts a little bit. There's now youth magazines, so young people have a disposable income, and that gives them a little more power to, to speak out, but those youth magazines actually are helpful in an effort to control. So Bravo, the most famous German youth magazine, plays, for instance, a vital role overall. They're actively rebranding what it means to be young, so the term teenager shifts from this rebellious, female kind of individual towards maybe a little rebellious, maybe listen to some rock and roll music, maybe wear some jeans, but after that period of growing up, this rite of passage, you better return towards the traditional values. And if you don't, then Bravo and other magazines will point that out. So there's these mechanisms in place to make sure that that youth finds its way into a more traditional 1960s society, and those are fascinating to trace over
1: time. Um, and, and what would you say is the role of of like, consumer goods in this? Like you know, all these Ameri- like you mentioned blue jeans a few times. Um, is 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 it is is this part of the anxiety um, that that maybe older Germans are having that they're losing their their culture because of? This, you know, this massive influx of of, of American goods um, and consumer goods, music as well. Um, I mean, so is it is it really being driven by that, or is it is it, is it really just with concerns about that?
0: It's, I mean, and that's where, where youth always becomes a sort of platform for larger fears, and in this case, the big fear would be that West Germany, and Munich, are overrun by Americanizations. Americanization, so the rebel culture, the blue jeans that I mentioned, rock and roll music. It's the time of Elvis Presley. It's the kind of comic books. So this filth, as it's called at the time, that needs to be some that needs to be. Needs to be controlled. That's going against the German high culture. So Germany trying to find, with Germany trying to find the sort of in-between way between the, the, we can't be act too much against the U.S. because it is a Cold War and we don't want to restrict it too much. We're not the GDR, but at the same time, we don't want this mass consumer culture. So trying to navigate this kind of in-between way and that all plays out in discussions over you. And youth
1: culture. Now, I uh, I don't expect you to have a, a long winded answer to this, but do you see parallels with this um, youth movement in Germany to to say like what's going on in Great Britain at the same time um, with their sort of with their rockers and and mods and and yeah, sort of and there's, that there's that movement and in Britain? Britain. Is As there other parallels or not? For
0: Britain, there's parallels in the U.S. I mean, the fears are similar about young people. What makes Germany? So that Germany, is such a fascinating case, is trying to navigate this in between space between in, in the Cold War environment, but also the division of of uh, Germany and the Munich in particular, navigating the so called the, the, this kind of more vibrant, diverse urban space Munich, surrounded by a very conservative Bavarian Bavaria, and that is. Yeah, trying to to figure out those dynamics is kind of
1: where we youth culture is a nice lens, in a way, to discuss it all. Um, so your your final section looks at where they are, sort of come come of age, um, and the '60s, and culminating in '68, um, and you know their political activism. So um, can you really talk about the sort of those images? But also, I'll ask you some questions about 68 specifically, but I'll just, we'll start there.
0: In Munich, the the, the protest years, as we know and as I already mentioned, kind of begin in 62. We have those riots in Schwabing, which is a part of the, the student quarter, the bohemian quarter of Munich. And there, there is this minor incident where three musicians supposedly disturb public peace and the police shows up and then it kind of just escalates and we have several days of riots. Now, the Munich police relies on the indiscriminate use of violence, so they just beat up protesters, and they're not helping in kind of de-escalating, they're actually inflaming the situation. Now that triggers it off, and then over time it becomes more and more politicized as it does some in other places, so emergency laws, education reform, how to deal with the German past or the Nazi past, so the topics of 68. Now um, Munich is also a very violent space. In 1968, a student and a journalist actually die in the protests in Munich. And again, two images kind of come to the surface. One is the student. So I see this part of, partially as a construct because they're often defined as these middle class, mostly males. They all have beards. They're all anti-authoritarian, maybe even communist they are out to destroy the young state. And again and again in the historical record we see authorities write about or discuss this is another Bahama Republic. We're going down as a young democratic nation and we need to be active in responding to this. And the other image is these gambas, as they're called, so young bums. They kind of um, middle-class background. They're Males and females are traveling through Europe, Europe. they have dropped out, they don't want to take a job, they don't want to take their assigned role in society, they camp in the English Garden in Munich and they loiter on street corners just begging for some sort of change and that's also provocative to your traditional conservative maybe adult Munich There's actually some nice uh, documentary footage where we see those conversation captures between older residents and those gamblers, kind of not understanding their, their very different lifestyle and choices. So both images threaten authorities and they again begin stepping in. But they realize that they cannot because of their behavior in 62 and in the in response to the riots just beat up people anymore. Those days seem to be over. So the authorities kind of come of age. Munich passes the Munich line, as it's called, a more modern tactics of policing. They now includes to- documenting the events, de-escalation, surveillance, all these sorts of things. For example, they send... Numerous undercover agents to Schwabing to just wander the streets and step in once they have a suspect that is by himself, for themselves, so that they don't get into these larger, into these larger confrontations. They plant bushes, thorny bushes in several public spaces to avoid mingling spaces for students. So they use these kind of more nuanced approaches. And young people, Some students, some not. They also realize that they have some power, which makes it all more complicated. They now have alternative news media to get their voices out. They defend themselves in court when they get dragged into court. They just speak back, they fight back. And that complicates how images of youth emerge and they become much more complicated, which speaks to how community kind of diversifies and grows up in that sense, in, that, in those 1960s. Uh,
1: uh, do, they have, do these youth, do they have allies, or are they sort of out on their own?
0: At times, they have allies, and there's this scene where, where the director of the youth welfare office of Munich is kind of caught in the in the 62 riots because he's just out wanting to get some ice cream and all of a sudden he gets beaten up because the police doesn't make a difference at a certain point and he then becomes a very powerful outspoken ally and originally that is important because if you have an adult with that sort of power and importance in the city of Munich behind you, then that makes a difference. But over time, they're also just, no, we're going to form these community initiatives, and we're just going to defend ourselves, and we're just going to speak back. And the law, in many ways, is on our side. It is a democracy, but it has to be, that power has to be kind of taken. It is not given to them.
1: Hmm. And so we reached we reach 1968, which is a, a seminal year in the world. And... Um, can you discuss the character specifically of, of 68 in Munich um, and maybe just give a little how is it the same, how is it different than what's going on all over Europe?
0: So it's it's similar in a sense that many of the, of the issues are the same as they are in West Berlin, as they are in West Germany, more broadly. So I mentioned the, emer- the debates about the emergency law, the kind of... Uh, discussion about education reform, conversations about the Nazi past, and that pops up again and again in protests. It is similar because these ideas kind of flood in from Berlin, West Berlin many times and then kind of result in some sort of response similar to West Berlin in Munich when the conversation about the Shahs at the time, or the attempt to assassinate Rudy Dutschke. And there's responses, active responses, in, in Munich, as there are elsewhere. But they're also different because of 62 already uh, riots already lifted. So the police has already adopted to some extent, and young people have already adopted to some extent. They have <laughs> the major into Munich, and the police is going to have to figure out how to remove people, so this passive resistance element. They have figured out how to create some sort of alternative media outlets, how to speak against whatever they perceive as a fascist state that is emerging. So they are a little bit more a step ahead to some extent. It does not prevent the violence, and it has to, unfortunately, take the sort of violent moment of two people that are dying on the streets for people to realize, yeah, we need to be a little more careful with how we act and how we behave in that sense. So there's some similarities, there's some differences within the German context when it comes to how Munich fits in and how Munich doesn't fit in in those larger debates.
1: Um, You've mentioned the the discussions of the Nazi past a few times. and I'd like to, uh, for you to talk just a little bit about how um, how this does fit into the larger narrative that you're trying to talk about. Because if, obviously, if you analyze youth culture um constructs of youth culture in other countries, they don't have this issue of the Nazi past. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something very specific to Germany and something being that Munich is the birthplace of Nazism, probably something even very specific to Munich. Um, if you could talk a little bit about the the Nazi past and how that plays into how the youth are articulating their issues, because um, you know their their grandparents or their even their parents might have been involved with the Nazis and and they're not.
0: Yeah, Munich as the as the former capital of the of the Nazi movement has this more direct connection maybe even within Germany than some of the other cities do, which made it one. One reason for, for also taking it as a, as a, as a case study. Yeah, the, the youth culture, I mean, throughout the book, there's a sort of shift from, from 42 youths this kind of the, the town is in crisis. The, the, the government is in crisis. It's all falling apart. But over time, little seems to change for young people. They're still picked up. Now, by local German officers, even American, even American military government officials, they're still picked up. They're still sent to certain facilities, and only slowly do they realize that this is a different state. And this is where the '60s, to an extent, the '50s already, but mainly the '60s come in where they actively fight back. So they actively stand up against water cannons that are poured on them, where they actively distribute leaflets with their message about we need to stop this rise of a new fascist state because of the emergency laws that are seen as some sort of return of a Nazi state by some, and where they actively try to take advantage of the freedoms that they have. Now some take it too far, arguably and that's when they lose the support of maybe a larger public if they even ever had it fully and that's where it kind of crumbles and also because the grand coalition that's in charge and west germany overall eventually goes away so some of these fears don't fully materialize but yeah the nazi past is constantly there you hear students Young people, adults who are protesting, yelling Nazi state when the police moves forward against them. So it's sometimes also used as a way to, to illustrate that this is a major, major issue to deal, to be dealt with. So the sort of the democratization of Germany is not
1: where it should be. Uh, when you reach this point in the in the '60s and, and, and culminating in '68, does the, the the Nazi issue? Does that is that a real wedge issue between many of these these youths and their parents?
0: Yeah, to some extent. And given that I'm more looking at uh, how authorities have have seen youth, it's I paid not as much attention to to. Uh, to those kind of dynamics, but it does pop up. So especially when I then look into actual youngsters and how they construct themselves, yeah, there are these moments where they clearly kind of come of age themselves and realize, yeah, I need to do something. I mean, the the key example that that, that I point to in one instance is Andreas Bada, who is later has a has as a key individual for the. That Army Fraction who is on the streets in Munich in 1962 and supposedly at that moment from what we can tell based on his own writings and the writings of others, that this is when people are beaten in the streets, that this is not the society he wants to live in and something has to be done. So they all come to this sort of, this is not right. And that's when they gain a little bit more of their agency. And now that authorities now don't have the power to say, you are a student, you are a young person, you are just creating trouble. Now they get, now actual young people get a say, and yeah, we are young, but we are we are thereby also a renewing force, and they shift the image a little bit into a more positive direction. They help define what it means to be the student at that
1: point. So, I mean, I know that your your book sort of your ends in 72, but um, I did want to ask you a little bit about um, where does youth go from there? You, you just said that they had sort of recrafted their image a little more positive. Um, does this continue? Does... Um, these sort of questions about youth being dangerous go away after 72? Do they linger?
0: Yeah, the the, the, the the Bavarian government is very, very sophisticated in its response. They are able to take away more and more of the freedoms of young people. So to some extent, within the, the university environment, for instance, they're not as free to assemble, to set up certain student governments. To some extent, they are clamping down, but they're not able to put whatever genie has been let out of the bottle back into the bottle. And images of youth, whereas images of youth continue to linger, and I'll talk about those in a moment, the These images are much more diverse and complex because authorities have to give up their power to define these to some extent, and actual young people now have a say. So it makes society more democratic and more diverse, I would argue. Now, these images that still exist, I mean, in the 80s, there's images around drugs and punk music. More recently, there's images about male, young immigrants and how they are by default, delinquents, so the images are still floating around. They, they still have a decent amount of power. So, I mean, if listeners would simply, or simply ask themselves as they hear the word "youth," what stereotypes come to mind? And that's why one of the key points of the book was to illustrate that historians, as historians, we should be careful when we when we analyze young people's roles in history about those stereotypes and about those images so yeah images are around continue to be around but they don't seem to have that much power because they're not just one image there's hundreds of them because it's much more diverse democratic setup to that extent
1: yeah this this um, what you just said made me think of something else if you if you were to tell the listeners Just a couple of things that you would want them to take away about youth and youth culture from this book overall. uh, What would those be?
0: So I think one would be to, to distinguish or to try to distinguish when the term youth is applied, that many times we're not talking about actual young people, but we're just talking about a certain concept that historically has been filled, has been used as a platform to describe many other things, and that's what the book in many ways is trying to do. So getting through youth as a concept to discuss what units, what dynamics are about. So that would be one. The other one is to then ensure that actual young people get a voice. And I try to be very conscientious of that, whereas I'm describing concepts, I bring in individual stories to illustrate how actual youngsters felt about this, because they really have a voice in history, because they don't leave as many traces. Adults many times speak for them in the historical record or speak about them. Adults have generally more power, things like that. And then... The stereotyping of youth that I think is very widespread currently, but also historically in the historical record, and that was a point I made towards the end, that's that's what historians need to be careful about. If it says in the historical record, they're all delinquents, that doesn't mean they all are. It just speaks maybe to a power dynamic within the historical record, that adults get too many times create, and then we have to find alternatives, alternative sources, alternative ways to get at that so oral histories or youth magazines, if they're written by young people, and things like that to diversify that view a little bit. And then finally in this larger point and brings it back to Foucault, the sort of element of what are the benefits of having illegality, delinquency in a society, who is benefiting from that? And for youth, there's benefits tied to the institutionalization, schools, youth groups, things like that benefit from it to some extent. And they, of course, help to alleviate some of the issues, of course, as well. But also the, the markets, there's a massive youth culture out there that caters to the supposed needs of young people, and oftentimes form those needs to then sell certain products. And we see that all playing out in the period that I'm discussing in Munich.
1: Well, uh, well, thank you for that. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before I let you go, I'd like to always ask one final question. Um, what are you working on now?
0: So in the last two or so years, I've kind of returned to some of my earlier work around environmental history, which was a subfield when I was in graduate school, and I also kind of dabbled more into the 19th century. So at the moment, I'm working on a larger project tied to nature and empire in German Southwest Africa. So modern Namibia, so in a way, a very different project compared to the book we just talked about, which, yeah, I guess one tries to explore a variety of topics that are of interest.
1: Well, Martin, that sounds fascinating, and I hope I can have you back on the show to talk about it when it's done. I don't want to put any pressure on you or anything to, to finish. Um, I want to thank you again for being on the show. Um, I really enjoyed this book. Um, I think the listeners, will, if they go out and get it, will enjoy it too. I want to thank everybody also for listening, and we will see you all next time.